Well, if you were here last week, you'll remember we were finishing the book of Daniel. I don't know whether that was with a shout of hallelujah or a sigh of relief. But anyway, we've, we've done with Daniel. And um, we're looking for the next three weeks at some of the key passages leading up to Advent, some of the characters, some of the prophecies, and some of the things around Christmas. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be looking at John the Baptist this morning. Um, and I'm going to do two readings. One is from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through to 20, quite a long chunk. And then a much shorter chunk of John chapter 3, which is 27 to 30. So this is from Luke chapter 3. It's entitled, John the Baptist Prepares the Way. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysnia, tetrarch of Albini, joined the high priest of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough, place, the rough, rough ways made smooth and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God raised up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, What should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked and said, What should we do? He replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And many other words John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all, and he locked John up in prison. And then from John chapter 3, just reading from verse 27 down to verse 30. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. Let's just pray again. Yeah, Lord, we thank you for this rather unusual character of John the Baptist. And we pray now as we look at his life and ministry, just very briefly this morning, 
that you will inspire us in some fresh way. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Late on Wednesday evening, um, I was watching MasterChef. I don't normally watch MasterChef, but I thought I'd put it on. And it was actually quite good. The only problem is I went to bed really hungry. I don't know if you've ever done that, dreaming of all this wonderful food. But there was one particular chef on MasterChef, and he was making the main course meal. If you've watched it, you'll know that they have to cook a two-course meal, their signature dish. And he had this plate full of food, and from what I remember, it was halibut with a champagne and mushroom and something ever sauce, and four types of cauliflower, roasted, mashed, and two types I can't even pronounce, and then something caramelized that looked like stars around the side of it. And it looked incredible. But then came the verdict. The chefs were eating it, and they went, great as individual flavors, but it's all too much. You've got three meals here on one plate. Less is actually more in some cases. If your home is anything like ours, we get pizza menus through the door on an almost daily basis. Anyone else the same? Takeaway pizza menus? And normally, if you look right to the bottom of a pizza menu, there is the pizza that basically means that the person making it goes along and dumps everything they can find in the shop on top of the pizza and sticks it in the pizza oven. And it has some grand title, and it's just full of absolutely everything. Sam's smiling at this point. don't know why. Um, But when you eat one of those pizzas, you tend to find that actually... It doesn't really taste of anything at all because there is too much on it. Less is actually more. One or two toppings break, not 20. The great composer Mozart once wrote an opera and it was premiered in Vienna and the Austrian emperor, Joseph II, apparently on hearing the new piece, commented, there were too many notes, Mozart, to which he replied, there were just as many as were needed, your majesty. Sometimes in life, less is more. We don't actually add by putting things on and on. Well, today, first Sunday of Advent, we've lit our first Advent candle, and we're looking at the ministry of this unusual character, John the Baptist. Um, He's a character that I think we often overlook because we want to go straight into Jesus. We want to get straight into the birth of Jesus, the birth narratives. But in Luke's gospel particularly, there is a lot of interweaving between who John the Baptist is and then who Jesus is. If you read those first few chapters of Luke, you'll see it is all over it. But John the Baptist is a man with a very unique calling. His ministry serves as a transitional point. He is both the last of the Old Testament prophets of the Old Covenant and the first of everything that will become the New Covenant through Jesus the Messiah. He is the first one to bring fresh revelation from God for 400 years since the prophet Malachi had spoken. But he is also the first one who will then herald the gospel of the Messiah. And John comes along and he encourages encourages baptism for the repentant. Now, that wasn't totally unusual in a Jewish setting. At this point of history, the Jews would baptize Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. So it was part of that kind of initiation. They would baptize them. But John takes this a stage further, as we'll see in a moment. Another part of his calling is he is there to introduce Jesus. Now, Claire and I were were leading an away day at Stockton Heath Christian Fellowship last Saturday. And it's always interesting going as a visiting preacher. Um, How do you introduce yourself? You don't want to give a life story because that gets a bit tedious for the people listening. But if you just stand up and start preaching without any introduction, people might be thinking, who's this random bloke come to talk to us? What credentials do they have? Why are they leading us in worship or whatever? Thankfully, we were well introduced. And it makes life a lot easier as a preacher when somebody says who you are, why you're there, and what you're going to do. Because then you can just go straight in. Part of John's calling 
is to enable the ministry of Jesus to hit the ground running. Um, Luke quotes Isaiah talking about making straight paths for the Lord, making it easy for Jesus, the Messiah, to then come straight in. But John is no warm-up act. He's not like you've gone to some kind of gig somewhere and, you know, you're waiting for the main act to come on and there's this awful band beforehand. You're thinking, you know, just hurry up. We want the main act to follow. He's not like that at all. He has his very unique calling sent by God as well. And it's a very simple one. Repent and be baptized. Turn away from your own ways. Be baptized because the Messiah is on his way. If you've got that, that passage um, from Luke in front of you, just look at the opening of his sermon to the people. You brood of vipers. Um, basically saying you're a load of treacherous snakes. That is not um, the normal way you start a sermon. It's not certainly the way that any of the books on preaching I've ever read have suggested you start a sermon. But one thing we find with John the Baptist's message is that he is absolutely brutal. That is the only way you can describe his preaching style. It's brutal. It gets straight to the point. And what he's doing is he's saying to the Jewish nation, you have turned your backs on the ways of God. You have become treacherous and false in the eyes of God. And so what he does is, as well as being prepared to um, baptize Gentile converts, is he says to the Jewish people, you too need to repent. You need to come and have baptism for repentance because you have gone away from the ways of God. Who is most famously baptized by John the Baptist? Well, it's Jesus himself, isn't it? Jesus also takes the baptism of John. And just as an aside, this is not a message particularly about baptism, but if you haven't yet been through the waters of baptism and made that decision, the same one that Jesus did, could I encourage you, come and have a chat with me, chat with one of the other leaders. If you're not sure who the leaders are, go and look on the notice board. There are some lovely pictures of us all on there as well. Um, talk to us about what baptism means. It would be really great to have that conversation with you. But what's happening at this point is that the Jewish people are taking their kind of acceptability before God from their ancestry, from who they are as a people. Look at verse 12. It says, Abraham is our father. And their sense of who they are, their sense of belonging, their sense of, of worth before God is all linked in with this kind of historical idea that they are the children of Abraham. Now, all that is gloriously true. Abraham had been given the most amazing promises by God. If you know um, anything about Abraham, Abraham was called by God totally out of the blue. He lived in southern Iraq, in modern-day southern Iraq, in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. God speaks to him and says, get up and go. And then he eventually gets led to um, the promised land. And this is the, the promise that was made to him. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. What had happened was the people had heard that promise and they liked the first part. That's great, isn't it? You'll be given lots of descendants and a big land to live in. But they largely forgot about the second part. They'd largely forgot that actually they were called to be a light to the nations around them. They were called to be the ones who would make the, the Lord, the God, visible to other nations round about. And so by the time you get to the time of John the Baptist in the first century, it was relatively easy for a Jew to be committed to temple worship, to synagogue worship, to law observance, but to actually miss the heart of who they were meant to be. They could be all this religious stuff, do all this heritage stuff, but not actually be following God's ways. 
But God was not just for them. God was never just for the people of Israel. They were called to be a blessing to the nations around. You know, God is always welcoming the outsider, isn't he? We see that in the ministry of Jesus. Who does Jesus spend time with? Does he go and spend time with those who think they've got everything sorted? Does he go and spend time with those who are very pious? No, he spends time with the leper, the outcast, the people on the margins of society. That is what we're called to do. That is our calling as well, isn't it? You know, as church today, if we forget to be welcoming, we start to deny the gospel that we're called to share. If our services, if our buildings, if our groups, if we forget that we're called to welcome everybody to see the Son of God, then we start to deny who we are. The gospel is for all. So for the Jewish people, the clock of history is winding down. The coming of Jesus is about to take place. And they find themselves in a bit of a tight corner. They've got these puppet kings. You've heard of Herod, Herod the Great, who was there at the birth of Jesus. There's then all these various Herods who rule over little bits of, of land. And it's a complicated political scene. Now, at this point in time in history as well, there's the Pharisees. Remember them from Jesus' ministry? They go around and they think that actually if you keep the law to the nth degree, God will send the Messiah. And you have to do all these rules that are in the Bible, but then you add a load more to them as well, just to make sure you're doing the ones that are in the Bible. And they have these lists, and you can see Jesus sort of railing against this in his ministry. And then in comes John, and he says, you've got it all wrong. You've got all this wrong. This heritage, all this observance, it hasn't changed the heart. And so in verse 9, we get an analogy of cutting down trees that fail to produce good fruit. They're thrown into the fire. God is after something very different. So John's call is very simple. Repent. Repent, change, turn to God. Repent does not just mean saying sorry for doing bad things. But it's that 360 degree turn, that, that about turn to face the ways of God. Heritage is not, a no, not enough. Ancestry is not enough. Forward wine to our day, 2,000 years or so later. You know, we live in a society where we are privileged to live um, in, a, in a culture, in a society that has been shaped by hundreds of years of Christian witness. I think sometimes we overlook that. But the first people to share the gospel in this country, I don't know what the date was, but it's about third, fourth century, something like that. And since then, there has been Christian witness, without exception, year after year in this country. And our society today is shaped radically by the revivals of Wesley and Whitfield and the like in the 18th century. Some of the things that we take for granted, um, that slavery was abolished, that child labor was abolished, that we have a welfare state, that we have an NHS, they all actually come out of those, um, those sort of revivals that took place in the 18th century. But being people of legacy is not enough. Being people of good heritage is not enough. We may be sat here today, we may have known Jesus for many, many years. I don't know when I actually um, was converted to become a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home, but I was baptized at 18. Since then, I've sat through a lot of church services, an awful lot. Do you want to know how many, I reckon? Probably between 1,500 and 2,000 church services. I've probably sung somewhere in the region of 12 to 15,000 worship songs. I've heard message after message. I've probably preached myself 650 times. What a tedious thought. Um, but I know there are people in this room who have done double that stint. You've done double that stint, if not more. 70, 80 years of following Jesus. 
Lots of tradition, lots of heritage, and lots of good stuff has happened. But that is never what God is after. That is never what God is after. You know, it's all too easy to fall into the trap of first century Judaism, of just keeping things going, of resting on what has been, rather than thinking, what is God's heart for us? And to forget our calling, to forget our calling. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, a German pastor from during the Second World War, he says this, the church is only the church when it exists for others, not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell people of every calling what it means to live for Christ and to exist for others. So John comes up with an answer. He comes up with an answer to the problem. And it's about living with fruits of repentance. Verse 8. There was a lovely smell wafting through the church building on Tuesday afternoon. um, As lots of apples were being stewed. I think they were from Brian and Margaret's garden, is that right? And I've said I won't mention Elaine, but she was stewing them in the kitchen. Um, And there was this gorgeous smell of of, of apple being, being stewed. And I know a little bit about apple trees. And what I know about them is they grow apples. That's about all there is to say, isn't it, really? An apple tree grows apples. If you go into an an orchard, you won't suddenly find an apple tree growing oranges or an apple tree growing lemons. They grow apples. I'm no biologist, but that's what they're hardwired to do. They just grow apples. So actually, what John starts to do is say that if you're following after the ways of God, if you are repentant, you will start to produce the fruit of God. That is it. You can't but do anything else. You can't but do anything else. And so we get this message that this is what God is after. Now, the Pharisees, the Pharisees tried to tweak human behavior with lots of rules. You know, you can do that, can't you? You can tweak your own behavior by putting rules around yourself. I will not eat after such a time of day. I will not do this. I will do that. I won't do that. And you can tweak human behavior. You cannot change the heart. The heart will not be changed in that way. And so what John starts to talk about is about transformation of the heart, eventually by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of repentance which grows out of the human life is from a changed heart, a heart that becomes God's. Now, helpfully, very helpfully, John is a practical preacher. He's brutal, but he's practical. And he gives us some examples of what a changed heart looks like. Now, just before we move on to what John says, it's just worth noting we are never, ever saved by our works. This is not suddenly John saying, actually, forget all that will to come about being saved by faith through grace. We're reminded of what Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. But actually, what is going on here is that saving faith, the kind of faith that has saved us, grows legs and produces fruit. I'm mixing my metaphors there, but you know what I mean. The kind of faith that saves us produces fruit. In effect, we become like the apple tree. We can only produce apples. We can only produce good fruit if we are actually following in the ways of God. And so there are three things that John the Baptist talks about. First of all, he talks about radical sharing. Look at verse 11. Anyone who has two shirts should share the one should share it with one who has none and anyone who has food should do the same now i look at my own life i don't think i'm anywhere near close to that i don't know where you think you're up to with that kind of radical sharing that radical generosity if we're honest our society tends to still have that you know charity starts at home mentality 
Look after yourself first, look after those who are close to you, then start looking after other people with anything you've got left. What does John do? Well, he is so radical. If you've got something spare, give it away. If you've got spare food, give it to somebody who's not got any. You know, with one verse, he puts the whole wardrobe manufacturing business out of, out of business. You know, and it's radical, isn't it? It turns the world upside down. I'm not there yet. I don't know where you are. I'm not there in this kind of thing. But it's this heart. It's this heart for, for being the people that God calls us to be. And Jesus makes exactly the same point in the Sermon on the Mount. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, I think quite often the way that we think in in our sort of Western mindset, in our preaching, and quite often as we read the Bible, is we go from concept to application. So we think, oh, I've got to be generous. This is what it looks like. What John the Baptist does, what Jesus does as well, is he often goes from, here's an example. Now work out what this means across the rest of your life. Here's an example, but what does this mean for you? So I think the concept here is very clear. To be godly is to be generous. That's it. To be godly is to be generous. The fruit of repentance that John is talking about, the characteristic, is that actually we follow on from the generosity of God who has given his son for us, and we then give to other people in whatever ways we can. Now, I can't suggest many applications for your own life. I can suggest them to mine, but I want to suggest one just to think about. How would your Christmas look differently this year if you were radically generous? How would your Christmas look different? Just take that away and ponder about it. What would you do differently? What would it mean? John moves us on. The second thing he talks about is honesty. Verse 12. It says, even tax collectors came to John the Baptist. There's a reason it says even tax collectors. Tax collectors in John's day were not popular people. Tax collecting in the Roman Empire was subcontracted to people who basically would go out and collect the taxes that they needed to collect for Rome and then add a little bit on top for commission. But the little bit on top was up to them, what they added. So some of them would not add a little bit, they'd add an awful lot. And so they became known as corrupt people, people who were just after themselves. And so when Luke says, even tax collectors, it's a big thing. It's a big thing that these people who are essentially viewed as corrupt are coming to John the Baptist for baptism and in repentance. And verse 13, what's his instruction? Well, if you want to be repentant, you've got to behave differently. Stop extorting from people. Be honest in the amount of money that you're taking. For John, the call is simple honesty. You can't be repentant and be dishonest. You can't be repentant and be lying at the same time. What does Jesus say? The truth shall set you free. This kind of truth as well as him being the way, the truth, and the life. And the third thing he talks about is contentment. To the soldiers in verse 14, again, John calls for honesty, but also be content with your pay. That is not a popular line to read in today's economic climate. Not a popular line at all. Just to set that in context, soldiers were actually quite well paid. But they could use their power and influence to extort money from the vulnerable. And they would do that. And it was one of the tragedies of the society in the first century. Now, when we belong to God, when we're repentant, it doesn't mean that we should accept pitiful pay or horrendous working conditions. God's heart is always on the side of the poor, always on the side of the needy. But if we have enough, 
What does John say? Be content. Live in contentment. In our last church um, in Epworth, we had a lady who was part of the congregation called Gladys. And she was one of these um, saintly, practical people. She drove around in this car that I don't know how it stayed together, um, sort of buzzing around the town, you know, helping people out, doing all kinds of things. And she would regularly say to me, she said, the best things in life are free. Just think about that for, for the moment. The best things in life are free. And that she'd then say, you know, my relationship with God, for her, it was given freely. It's given by grace through faith. Friends, family, church family, the beautiful view, the views of the beach that we saw of Abbasoc this morning, even a damp November morning, it's all free. doesn't cost us anything. I said, can I just add one thing that does cost something that I think is worthwhile? That's musical instruments, but that's my thing. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? Most of the best things that give us the most contentment, relationship, all these things, they are free. Our relationship with God comes at great cost to him, but we receive it freely. I just wonder today, are we content in God? Are we content in the things that God has given us? Not if we're living in terrible situations. That is not the case. We should be content with that. But if there are good things that we can, uh, could be content about, are we content in the things that God has given us? Thirdly, he must become greater. Back to Master Chef. <laughs> less is more, isn't it? Well, when it's less of me anyway. Less of me and more of Jesus. That is essentially the message of John the Baptist towards the end of his ministry. All of John's ministry is to point to one thing, and that's to the coming of the one who died to save us. That's to the coming of Jesus, who is the Messiah. His preaching is to prepare people's hearts to hear the good news. His calling is to enable people to receive Jesus into their hearts and lives. And all this teaching, practical it is, as it is about Jesus becoming more and the individual becoming less. But this is incredibly countercultural, isn't it? Our society teaches us that we are important. We are the center of our lives. We are to do the things that make us feel worth it. We're, we're to do the things that make us feel important. And we can do that with our ministries as well, can't we? We can do that with our ministries. Whatever your ministry is, whatever your calling is by the Lord, whether it's up front, whether it's in the background, whether you're somebody who works on the world stage or you talk to your next-door neighbor about the love of Jesus, all of it, we're told... Jesus becomes greater, I become lesser. And that's the way his light shines. John had a significant calling of ministry, but of itself, it was only to serve the one who came after him. It was only to serve Jesus. Now, it's estimated John's ministry lasts about two to two and a half years, something of that kind of nature. It's not long, but it prepares the way for Jesus. And not long afterwards, Jesus appears. His ministry has already been introduced and as we see in the beginnings of the gospel, he is able to then start his ministry having had that introduction. So the fruit of repentance, the fruit of repentance, it's all about more of Jesus, isn't it? More of Jesus in my life. More space for his agenda for living. More space for his gospel to shine. More Christ-like characteristics. We're called to be people who point others to Jesus. We don't, we're not the ones who save people. We're not the ones who have to convict people of sin. It's the Holy Spirit who does that. But we're the ones who are called to prepare the way of the Lord. So I just want us to think for a moment, in your life, in the life of our church, are we preparing the way of the Lord? Do we create the right atmosphere 
for the good news to be shared? Do we do that in our home life? When we go shopping? When we're sat in Costa? Whatever it might be. Do we behave in a way that allows the message of Jesus to then resonate? Because John the Baptist's point is basically, you know, you can say what you want, but if it's not backed up by actions that reveal God, actually, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. The whole lot has to hang together. And so that very simple question, are we demonstrating the fruits of repentance? Now, I think if you're staying um, for the meal after the church meeting after this service, you will get to eat that apple crumble. Just remember, are you an apple tree this morning? Are you producing one kind of fruit? If we're not, let's be honest, let's not try and kid ourselves or kid God. You can't kid God, can we? But let's come to the Lord in repentance and say, Lord, would you help me this year as we approach this Christmas time to produce those fruit of repentance so I can become less and you can become greater. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son into the world. We thank you that John the Baptist pointed people to you. I just pray, Lord Jesus, that in our own lives, that we may point people to you as the light of the world, that we would prepare the way, create the atmosphere where the gospel can be shared. And Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves. Where we're not showing fruits of repentance, Lord, would you challenge us? Would you gently nudge us back into your ways? And Lord, may we submit our lives to the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Lord Jesus, would even now your Holy Spirit be resting upon us, helping us to walk in your ways, helping us to know your truth, helping us to live for you. And we ask it for Jesus' sake.